Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. It is the Geostrategic Hour with our main man, Matthew Errett. He is here live in studio. And with that being said, you can go check out Matt. <laughs> I'm right behind. I'm right next to you, man. Just move the camera. Oh, shit. Hey. <laughs> Sorry, I missed you there. <laughs> you can check out Matthew's work over at his Substack as well as CanadianPatriot.com and the TheRisingTideFoundation.net. And uh, that's where you can find his work. Again, folks, subscribe, subscribe to the Substack, as well as the amazing Telegram groups that are there. The Rising Tide Telegram group is amazing. A plethora of knowledge, information, and a real education on all things geostrategic, So, you, and as well as historical, which is something that is very, very important for this day and age. And with that all being said, Matt, how are you, buddy? What's going on? Very well, very well. Yeah, I figured today we could talk a little bit about international law. Might sound a little dry. Hey, for hey, some, hey, but hey, really not. hey, we don't like those words here. We only like the <laughs> rules based order, Matthew. We only like the rules based order, like what Tony Blinken talks about. Well, this is the thing. I, I think it's going to be a fun little uh, exercise for some just to go through it. what is the difference of the between these two paradigms. Because a lot of people, they hear rules based order, and I mean, it's getting abused. It's It's got this cultish aspect to it, you know, and if you want to be an acceptable, respected member of the G7 community of, you know, the, the Western uh, liberal paradigm, then you have to talk a lot about the rules-based order that everyone should be obeying. Now, that sounds a lot like the international law. It sounds, like uh, a, lot like a, it sounds a lot like the mafia, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nothing personal, strictly business. We have a rules-based order. You know how this goes. Exactly. It, it definitely has that. And I mean, it, rules and, and law are not the same thing. And also the idea of in, like, I mean, both both have international to them, but that that is just in a word. The one is definitely based upon, as you said, a mafia principle of you got to be a part of the family with with the rules of the family of the, you know, <laughs> of the yeah. Sicilian mafia, uh, regardless of how immoral they might be. Um, and if you're not going to play with those rules, you might find yourself at the bottom of the sea. Now that that's at least the ethic. That's the that's the way this thing uh, is being pushed. The other view um, is actually based upon precedents that go back hundreds of years and have been really obscured uh, from our history books that are premised around international law as having been founded upon the respect for sovereign nation states. That is what is enshrined in the United Nations Charter. And as Putin and Xi Jinping have said on multiple occasions, even most recently at the uh, Moscow summit on international security uh, that just finished, um, which is a very powerful summit featuring Putin, Lavrov, many others, the, the point kept on being hammered at that if there is going to be any chance for world peace and avoidance of, of uh, essentially a dark age, 
then it has to be founded upon the United Nations Charter and international law from that standpoint. And again, that confuses a lot of people because they're like, oh, but the United Nations have, has done a lot of bad over the past 75 years since its founding in 1945. And it's true. Just like the United States, a lot of bad has been done under the name of the United States. Does that make the United States bad intrinsically? Is that the U.S. Constitution is shit? Or no, not at all. It means that there has been bad done in the name of something good. Same thing for the United Nations. And I want to go through since it's the it's the anniversary of its uh, of its signing. Uh, just it was J June twenty sixth was the anniversary of the signing into law of the UN Charter. Um, in 1945, I figured now would be a good time just to like clarify what is it that, that is in this thing that scares the hell out of the oligarchy, which has recaptured the United States over the course of the past 75 years since Franklin Roosevelt died, since JFK tried to defend the principles of the U S constitution and he was killed and so was his brother. So what, what is this, what is it within this UN charter that is so scary? Um, I got a few, I got about five slides. I got a little video that CJ has that I want to, I want people to listen to as well. And a couple of images that are pretty funny. I think so at least. <clears throat> so first, uh, yeah, CJ, why don't you go ahead and just play that video? This, this is just to get the continuity of history in mind, because, you know, I, I like history a lot as everyone here knows. I look at, uh, and, and try to assess current of current events geopolitics from the standpoint of historical forces and dynamics that are shaping the present and also the future um the best people i've looked at who i admire who have made history people like this person who we're about to listen to was uh president Frank franklin roosevelt's vice president henry wallace who was ousted in a bit of a inner coup in 19 early 1945 and replaced by a wall street a uh, banker's boy named uh, Harry Truman, but Wallace, just like Roosevelt, was was understood these historical forces of history that the U.S. was was responsible for defending going into the post World War II era, we and had he it. had uh, made a wonderful little video that I've just spliced together the best of the the parts into three minutes, uh, just to outline what the post war world was supposed to be if he hadn't been destroyed if Roosevelt hadn't died early and all of their allies hadn't been purged from the U.S. Uh, establishment. So go ahead, uh, CJ. Fight between a slave world and a free world. Just as the United States in 1862 could not remain half slave and half free, so in 1942, the world must make its decision for a complete victory one way or the other. Down the years, the people of the United States have moved steadily forward in the practice of democracy. When the freedom-loving people march, when the farmers have an opportunity to buy land at reasonable prices and to sell the produce of their land through their own organization, when the workers have the opportunity to form unions and bargain through them collectively, and when the children of all the people, these opportunities are open to everyone, then the world moves straight ahead. But the march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long, drawn-out people's revolution. This great revolution of the people, there were the American Revolution of 1775, the French Revolution of 1792, the Latin American revolutions of the Bolivarian era, the German Revolution of 1848, the Russian Revolution of 1918, 
spoke for the common man in terms of blood on the battlefield. Some went to excess, but the significant thing is that the people broke their way to the light. The people are on the march toward even fuller freedom than the most fortunate peoples of the earth have hitherto enjoyed. The people, in their millennial and revolutionary march toward manifesting here on earth the dignity that is in every human soul, hold as their credo the four freedoms enunciated by President Roosevelt. We who live in the United States may think there is nothing very revolutionary about freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom from the fear of secret police. But when we begin to think about the significance of freedom from want for the average man, then we know that the revolution of the past 150 years has not been completed, either here in the United States or in any other nation in the world. We know that this revolution cannot stop until freedom from want has been attained. All right. Yeah, that was good. That was good. So that was in 1942. Break that down for us, man. There's a lot that he said. There's a yeah. lot there that, that needs to be unpacked. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that was that was a very important speech. And um, <clears throat> the, this idea of the four freedoms was first enunciated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, in 1941 in January. This was something that was that was expressed in a speech to Congress before the U.S. had gone into World War Two, but had begun the Lend-Lease program to assist, especially the the Soviet Union in their battle against Nazism. Um, the, the Soviet Union, as we all know, it took on the the brunt of the the war. I mean, something like eight million soldiers, Russian soldiers died, twenty nine million civilians as a whole. Yeah. Uh, the, the second uh, biggest hit was taken by China, that suffered ten million losses. The U.S. in comparison had about, I think it was sixty thousand, uh, six hundred thousand. Uh, soldiers killed. Um, Britain, something like 400,000. So, I mean, the proportions are very, very, very different. So, Roosevelt was very much um, looking at the Wall Street City of London financiers who had backed the rise of fascism. He understood this very well because, as I've written and as we've talked about in, in many of our uh, of our shows, uh, FDR went to war with these international financiers. He understood it that well. He broke up the Wall Street banks. He forced uh, them to reorganize themselves under federal law and emit credit for large-scale development instead of speculation throughout 1933 to 38. And he was it was always a fight, the New Deal, against uh, traders from within his own administration, within uh, the deep state of the United States that was very much alive and well even back then. And he sabotaged the Great Reset, the international... Uh, conference of 1933 in London to create a, a world bankers dictatorship. So he understood the nature of the game very well. So when he came out uh, looking at the conditions of a world of a one world government run by fascist uh, enforcers, he understood that it wasn't just the simplistic idea of Nazism. There was some that was evil, but there was something above that even. So he always understood that the U.S. had to think about what would be their role in abolishing the foundations of fascism forever, which is colonialism. It's the same thing. Empire and fascism were very much connected in one one idea in Roosevelt's mind. 
So he was already preparing the groundwork for what would be the the world system, the new post-World War II age um, after Hitler was put down. And this is 1941 that he's saying, you know, it has to be based on these four freedoms, freedom from, from uh, fear of secret police, uh, freedom of religion, freedom to respect your conscience, freedom uh, of speech, right? And um, forgetting another one, but uh, there's another great one too. And th that couldn't just be on paper or in words. It had to be an action. So combined with that in 1941, this is a big year. You had two other things that happened that have been obscured from history. And a lot of what's been happening under Biden has been a, a direct attack on this. Number one was the Atlantic Charter. So Churchill was assigned to replace Neville Chamberlain, right? 1940. Neville, yeah. Who was Neville Chamberlain? He was the prime minister of Britain who was pro-Nazi. Britain as a whole, the, the consensus of the British establishment was to back Hitler and Mussolini. And, you know, they had a Nazi king who was only ousted in 36 under a contrived scandal because it was, you know, at a certain point, Hitler was no longer behaving according to the commands being doled out to him by his London masters. And he started listening to his generals and he started getting the sense that with this military machine that we've built up, we don't have to be second, second string to uh, the, the, the British oligarchy. We could be uh, common partners on, on equal or even maybe greater scales as the British Empire in the New World Order. Yeah, and Hitler was an Anglophile. Hitler was a big Anglophile. Yes, big time. Huge. And people often forget, well, what was the world that he he envisioned? It it involves him openly inviting Britain, openly, after saving Britain several times and not crushing them when he could have, he openly invited Britain to be in charge of controlling India and China and lots of Africa, saying that you've demonstrated your superiority as the Aryan race to keep these dark, dirty people under control. That should be your jurisdiction. And we will control the Soviet dirty Slavs and use Russia as a, uh, a resource extracting breadbasket for us. And, and, and you know, Italy will control their zones of interest in the Middle East and North Africa and some of Europe. And then the, the American... Uh, fascists who are then controlling things like the the American Liberty League, who worked with uh, Wall Street's J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller interests, yep. they would control the North American jurisdiction mostly, and um, so they had the world divided that way. And and again, anybody on the inside, good or bad, understood that that was the terms and conditions. However, again, like I said, Hitler realized that with this military might built up, they didn't have to play second string. And, and that became troublesome for the financial oligarchy who had to change plans after or change strategies when they, their Frankenstein monster started coming at them. Um, and that, that was a fight inside of the British establishment. A lot of the British lords and elites wanted to stick with their plan, but they finally decided to jettison uh, Neville Chamberlain. They got in, uh, a disciple of, you know, Cecil Rhodes, a, a real like lover of the empire, uh, Churchill. And that was really his job was just defend the British empire. We've, we fucked up. Uh, you might have to censor this for YouTube. I don't know. Uh, but we screwed. We're uncensored we here. Too late now. eh? yeah. Okay, <laughs> um, but now we have to defend and keep the British empire intact while at the same time undoing Frankenstein so that he begged, he needed Roosevelt to come in. And Roosevelt spent a long time keeping Churchill at bay, but he knew that Roosevelt also knew that at some point he would have to go in and put this thing down too. So he had Churchill by the balls in a sense. And mm -hmm. he had the vision of a world that you just heard Henry Wallace enunciate that could no longer be half slave, 
and half freed the way Lincoln had outlined for America going into the Civil War. It can't coexist one nation under one roof, half slave, half free. It had to give. Uh, same thing for the world as a whole. And he was talking now about the British Empire and also the American Empire, too. They had their own colonies in the Philippines and stuff. So <clears throat> the Atlantic Charter was, on the one hand, created in August 9th, uh, 1941. He forced Churchill, if you read this thing, it's, it's an eight-point plan calling for uh, the respective sovereign nation states, the right to autonomy, non-intervention. This is 1941. He got Churchill to sign this with him as a condition for his playing along and backing up um, the Allied cause. Number two, two days later, no, three, five, six days later, sorry, uh, you had the United Nations Charter that Roosevelt and Sumner Wells, his Undersecretary of State for Foreign Affairs, drafted. And the United Nations Charter, it only came into law, or was only enacted in 1945, but it was actually drafted with the Atlantic Charter as one thing in 1941, August uh, 14th. And these things were the enshrinement of the Four Freedoms Principles and also the earlier Good Neighbor Principles of 1936-37 that Roosevelt enacted to ensure the U.S. support for the autonomy and sovereignty of all of the Latin American nations. So it was a real anti-imperial push by Roosevelt to actually start helping Mexico nationalize their oil, uh, paying for the first time a lot of these South American banana republics, uh, paying them for the things that the U.S. had been stealing from them for decades and it, supporting them politically and, and economically around their right to have access to technological progress, technology transfers, and also autonomy. So that was the good neighbor policy of 36-37. That was, again, amplified with the four freedoms. It was, again, given more meat and structure with the Atlantic Charter um, and then was given even more meat with the uh, and def definition with the United Nations Charter of 41, enacted in 45. So when you hear people like Biden and uh, Boris Johnson coming out on uh, June 10th of this year saying, oh, look, the Atlantic Charter wasn't relevant. It wasn't really relevant for the modern uh, times we live in. We needed a new Atlantic Charter that they signed. That's a travesty. You read the, their new Atlantic Charter. This is not the Atlantic Charter. This is This is saying that we are committed to a world of a rules-based order, uh, a NATO collective security pact. So that's not even very international. That's very people would feel very left out because NATO is very much not inclusive. Um, well, they're they're trying to create a co-brand, right? They're trying to create a I'm sorry, a counter-brand to the BRI. I mean, after all, these 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 broken sovereign nations have so much wealth. They're going to go around and uh, and build infrastructure throughout the entire world. I, I heard America is going to be working on high-speed rails in North Africa. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. There's no way. I mean, they have monopoly money. Literally, it's 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 paper. Not even uh, it's digital paper. It, there's nothing behind it. There's no backing. There's no value. Whereas the Chinese uh, currency, the Chinese approach, actually has real value. And yeah, you're right entirely that the new Atlantic Charter uh, was designed four days before the G7 announced their stupid uh, Build Back Better for the World uh, Green Initiative, Green New Deal Initiative. Um, which is supposed to, like you said, counter the BRI. Uh, and it's enshrined in the new Atlantic Charter. They say it's we are entirely founded upon, they say sovereign nation states, but no, if you're doing all these other things, including green energy commitments to decarbonize the world with green international infrastructure, you can't, the, the word sovereignty of nations means nothing at all. So that's what I, I wanted to just quickly, and oh, and also just quickly too, uh, the two other things that are being highly attacked right now 
uh, that I get in my current uh, trilogy that I'm writing. Part uh, one has been published. Part two will be published this week. Um, is the the a direct attack on the United Nations Law of the Sea on twofold level? The the UN you know you know uh, it's called let's call it UNCLOS, but United Nations Law of the Sea was established in in 1982. And this has played a big role in the last two weeks of international geopolitics, especially since the British destroyer was, you know, sent out provocatively uh, by the foreign office to go straight beeline into Russian waters around Crimea within the, the 12 nautical line mark um, as a provocation, basically saying we don't recognize that Crimea is a part of Russia. We we don't recognize the democratic election that occurred. And instead, we're just going to go right into the that 12 nautical uh, line limit. Uh, which resulted in a Russian uh, serious warning that could that made it very clear that this would be world war if you if you keep pushing that line that's a red line don't do it. Uh, so the British are are just doing little fire starters. But what that was, the twelve nautical mine comes from the 1982 UN treaty that said, okay, every nation, unlike the 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 past 600 years where it's been freedom of the seas that defined international water issues. Because who, which territory owns what water? It was always under, like, practiced as whoever, whoever has the power to impose their their warships in a zone. That's their right. Water is water. Land is land. It's different. Now, the the UN uh, uh, Convention on Law of the Sea was said no. The UN Charter, which enshrines sovereign nation states and the respect for sovereign nation states in a peaceful process as foundational, that has to define how we treat territorial waters. So they said within twelve a twelve nautical miles surrounding of any any landmass, that is the that is the the territory of that nation. And into two hundred nautical miles, that's the economic exclusive zone. Any type of you know oil or fish or whatever else type of economic activity you get within two hundred nautical miles, that's not for anybody to access. That's for the possessor of the land within that zone. So you could you could you have freedom of navigation. You, anybody can 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 navigate on within that zone, not the twelve kilometer, uh, not the twelve mile one, but the two hundred mile uh, zone. Yeah, you can, yeah. but you can't you can't take resources, and that was understood, and that created certain guiding rules to follow. So what Britain did wasn't just a challenge on uh, uh, Crimea's uh, participation in Russia but it was a direct challenge on the very foundation of that as is the U S and there are, you know, dozens of probably hundreds of forays into Chinese uh, ex exclusive economic zone waters in China's backyard where China has been telling the United States, well, Whoa, we're feeling very threatened by your massive military expansionism on, on our own backyard and uh, bringing your destroyers into our backyard. Uh, you know, you got several hundred thousand troops there with missile shields all around us uh, that are very threatening. And the U.S. response has been, no, no, no. According to the U.N. Uh, Convention of Law of the Seas, we're allowed to do this. And China's response back to the United States is, yeah, but you didn't actually sign that, did you? So you can't really rely on that. Can you or should you? Um, so, again, it, it's it's all being challenged by this idea of responsibility to protect R2P, right? The idea that came out of Tony Blair's Chicago speech in 1999 when he basically went to Chicago and said, based on terrorism and the, the new unconventional asymmetrical threats to law and order, uh, the UN Charter and, and the old beliefs in the Westphalian principle of sovereignty, those are no longer applicable. We need a new doctrine, and that has to be what came to be known as R2P, 
uh, that was enshrined eventually by 2005 by Lord Malik Brown, the same guy that ran the color revolution in the U.S. with Soros. It, he was at that time a big head honcho, deputy uh, secretary general of the United Nations. He enshrined that in the United Nations protocols by 2005-06. Um, it was funded by George Soros with a lot of his open society think tanks, um, including uh, Samantha Power, who was an early uh, she was being sponsored early by by Soros, and she even admits that that she was unmarketable on the open markets of ideas unless Soros's open society came out and gave her grants. Where she became an advocate and somebody who brought in R2P with Obama in 2008. Now, this had already been practiced without those terms by the bombing of Iraq and, and Afghanistan under Bush and Cheney, but it became now more defined as liberal imperialism under Obama used to justify legally humanitarian bombings of places like Libya, Syria, and beyond. So R2P, again, is another anti-UN charter program. So these are all of the, the, the aspects of the international rules-based order. That's what they're talking about, is a system where it's Hobbesian might of a unipolar uh, sociopathic clique, like you said, the mafia principle, who can impose their will onto the many. I've noticed Oscar the Grouch there uh, for the past couple of minutes. CJ, why is Oscar the Grouch up there? Well, <laughs> if you watch the exclusive video of yours truly breaking it down... Yeah, uh, you'll understand why it's uh, Oscar the Grouch. Okay, you you mentioned. I'll tell you exactly the uh, Oscar the Grouch, the Grouch and the trash can thing. You mentioned the whole entire um, USS Britishship, the HMS Defender, which I like to call the PMS Pretender. When the PMS Pretender was uh, intentionally driving itself into the into the Russian waters, and then the Russians, uh, you know, they they basically scared the damn thing away. Yeah. It was and that occurred on Sunday night and the Tuesday morning before that Sunday night uh, that Sunday event with the uh with the cruiser um you had the entire dossier of what the idiot British were going to do with the PMS pretender and how it was going to provoke the Russians that entire dossier was found in a trash can in the back of a bus stop okay Are you serious? I didn't Yes Oh my God! Yes, it was this. That's why I said double. That, that's why the whole thing had to do with Oscar the Grouch, and the title was Double O Dopes. The deep <laughs> stating that this is the quality of idiots. They're leaving dossiers in the back of, uh, in, in, you know, in, in the back of bus station uh, trash bins. Okay, just leaving it around. They're they're plotting coups on Zoom calls while they're getting. Hacked. I mean, this is the deep state. <laughs> you shouldn't be so scared of these idiots. No, the amount of incompetence, eh? Like it's unbelievable. It, it's fallen far since the days of James Bond and uh, Ian Fleming. Um, you know, another thing too, in terms of incompetence, and then we can get back to the the, the topic. But is uh, I was just thinking about the the um, the so called you know Russian was Russia was accused of hacking continental uh, colonial pipeline uh, to shut down U.S. energy sovereignty not that long ago, right? And uh, we're told you know it's a uh, it's a, it's a hacking group in, in Russia sponsored by the Kremlin who was carrying out their attacks. And uh, they demanded, you know, a, a ransom ransom of something like $5 million in, in Bitcoin. They left their Bitcoin in a California-based server that was easily just rec uh, reclaimed by the U.S. authorities. Like, <laughs> if you have this giant web of, of uh, <laughs> cyber spies shutting down your pipeline, are you going to keep your ransom that you've just received in a U.S. based, uh, California based server? No, Never. you know it's such a joke. 
<laughs> no, it's really incompetent. Um, but I think it's again the arrogance uh, of the of the machine, right? Uh, yeah. The more you feel like you you your word is law, whatever the oligarchy wanted for so long, they were able to almost just manifest it for decades, and it was really only somewhat recently that the world stopped behaving the way they wanted it to behave. Um, and Russia and China really started taking a stand and saying that no, we're not we're not going to play by your script anymore. So I think that yeah, what we're seeing is very lawful flubs left and right. Um, it's it's funny, it's disastrous, it's scary, it's a bit of everything. It's weird. They they need a new name for this. We need the Germans to come in and make a new Schadenfreude type name. You know, we we need to man. It, it, it's like our big dude. The the level of incompetence is is really incredible. It's really yeah. incredible. It's it, it's like. They have probably the most lowbrow millennials and the most uh, clueless boomers working together in some sort of an amalgam of disaster. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that, that's where I think that, again, like for me, it's really empowering to really explore history from this standpoint because yeah. we're living in history. We're also living in the consequence of historical ideas and intentions and the failure of ideas. Some good ideas failed to take hold. Well, bad ideas uh, dominated. And, and so we have this um interesting battle of concepts over the course of many 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 hundreds of year, years that are investigatable you can look at like what were these different futures that different people wanted to bring into being and how did they clash right um so you could see where this is not new the 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 oligarchies uh, creation of a system of total, total submission and dominance under a unipolar, you know, world type of, you know, new Roman empire or something. That's not a new idea in the modern age. This goes back all throughout the last 2000, 3000, 4000, probably years. And every time that the empire gets close to achieving what they want, they break down, they start self cannibalizing their own existence. Yeah. And oftentimes, I mean, not, sometimes when we're lucky, um, qualified leaders arise and take advantage of the oligarchy's fundamental incompetence. Um, people, and I, that's why I brought up Wallace and Roosevelt, because Wallace and Roosevelt were two wonderful exemplars who were, we can learn so much from by looking at the battles, the drama behind the scenes that shape these legal documents. Because um, a lot of people, they get stuck in technicalities and ivory tower academia when they just like nitpick legalities. And it's like, no, but you're missing the, the, the contour, the qualities, the ideas in the in the environment that shape these shadows that were written down for you. Um, so actually, what I wanted to maybe, that being said, I'm going to share a screen here because um, I got three images that I wanted to just show people. Um, Windows, here we are. And uh, um, I'm not good at this. Uh, hold on, I'm so sorry. No, take your time. PowerPoint, here we are. I got it. Aha. Okay. So can you guys see that? Yes. Okay. I love this picture because <clears throat> throughout the entirety that Roosevelt met Churchill three times. Stalin really liked Roosevelt a lot. Stalin had been uh, through some crazy, crazy stuff in Russia. I mean, everybody looking at Trotsky's conspiracy where Trotsky was, you know, <laughs> had this, weird, weird relationship with Japanese fascists, uh, Nazis, to, you know, in, in both in Ukraine as well as in Germany, as well as the uh, Western establishment. Trotsky had a whole uh, program to, uh, to, you know, take over Russia. 
uh, kill Stalin, take over Russia. And, and there's uh, some wonderful writings that I'm, I'm beginning to read now by Grover Fur. Uh, these incredible pieces of research piecing together these battles that were happening inside of Russia itself. Um, and, uh, and Stalin was like looking at how the hell did Roosevelt manage to do the New Deal, break the Wall Street banks, break London. And they had an affinity. Neither one of them trusted Churchill at all, nor should they have. It was, you know, and that's why you'll always see Roosevelt in between Stalin and Churchill. You'll never see Stalin and Churchill sitting together in one of these like trifecta meetings. Um, and this one's a great picture because I think this is in Morocco um, in 43 where it was becoming very clear to Churchill that the empire was going to be taken down by, by Roosevelt. Um, I've got a little citation of a, of, a, of a confrontation both of them had that was recorded by Roosevelt's son, who was also FDR's assistant. So you got the legal foundations of modern, modern law. The, I mentioned the, the UN Charter, the Atlantic Charter. Uh, these are all based upon, along with the Four Freedoms, they're based upon the enshrinement of the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648. Every legal scholar will agree that the Treaty of Westphalia set the tone for these things. Um, Tony Blair and Henry Kissinger have come out saying we need to enter the post-Westphalian era. Um, most people don't know what they're talking about because they don't know their history because we've all been submitted to an imperial education, which doesn't give us this history. Now, these guys who are, who are not given community college educations, they are given an understanding of history. And they, they also understood how historical forces act on the present. So when they say we need a post-Westphalian era, they understand what they're talking about. Westphalia, for those who don't know, is very important. I gave a class on this two weeks ago. It's available uh, on YouTube. But <clears throat> this put an end to 30 years of religious war that were funded by the Venetian uh, financiers. So Venice was the center of world finance back in the 17th century and, and earlier. For about a thousand years, it was the world center of finance. It controlled international bullion, international silver, international sea trade. Um, going back all the way through Asia, uh, this was Venetian dominated. Venice was the zone where many of the leading, most virulent families of the Roman Empire moved after Rome collapsed in 14, uh, from 400 to 450 when the, the, you know, the Huns and the, and the Visigoths uh, sacked Rome. Basically, the, the uh, inner elites had to either die or to survive, they had to migrate. And a bunch of them migrated uh, and reconstituted themselves in the lagoons of Venice, uh, in the sort of the, the armpit of, uh, of Italy. And that became a, a sort of zone of evil for a very long time. They sacked Constantinople. They worked with the Mongols, people like... Uh, uh, geez, uh, Marco Polo and his father were advisors to the Khans, the Kublai Kai, and provided strategic intelligence for the Khans when they wanted to start invading West and take over the world. They were, the, the Venetians were the only, only power that was given tr monopolies over trade routes in, in Mongolian-controlled territory in favor of providing Venetian intelligence. And Venice had the best uh, spy network in the world that was able to profile all kingdoms, all courts, all uh, leaders and look and look for their weaknesses. Where could where could they be corrupted? Where were their weak points? And that, that was how a lot of people today are, to this very day are confused. How the hell did these bar barbarians of Mongolia under the Khans successfully uh, thwart again and again and again all of these Western kingdoms? Um, include and it was because they had intelligence. They were you know they, were, they had a lot of assistance. So Venice was the place that was funding, especially after the the Reformation. Uh, different sects and self-divided sects within Christianity, uh, Lutheran, Lutherans, Calvinists, uh, Catholics, um, and more 
to just kill each other nonstop. It was like, you know, today's uh, never ending wars in the Middle East between Muslims and Jews and fake Christians and stuff. Um, so it, it all were being funded by the same uh, evil financiers, all sides. So this was ongoing. Germany lost a third of their population. Some cities lost a full half of their population during the 30 years war. Uh, it was going to be a dark age. Civilization couldn't continue. And some leading people around uh, France, the, the French finance minister, uh, Mazarin, organized uh, over several years, um, everybody, all powers. And there was something like there, there, there were thousands of, of mul multitudes of interests. There was no German state. There was like 2000 jurisdictions in Germany run by prince electors representing you know, Protestantism, Catholicism, who had only been killing each other with mercenaries for a long time. There was no German nation. Uh, France was in a better place for various reasons. I go to, I, I go through in my class in my upcoming paper. But the key that made this thing work after seven years of backdoor negotiations was the first two articles, the principal article one of Westphalia, 1648, that there shall be a Christian and universal peace and a perpetual true and sincere amity that this peace and amity shall be observed and cultivated with such a sincerity and zeal that each party shall endeavor to procure the benefit, honor, and advantage of the other, that thus on all sides they may see that this peace and friendship in the Roman Empire and the Kingdom of France flourish by entertaining a good and faithful neighborhood. This is what is studied later on by, by American um, patriots. Uh, people like John Quincy Adams study this when he's discussing his um, uh, community of... Uh, the international community of sovereign interests. So Quincy Adams had a whole Monroe doctrine uh, based upon the good neighbor policy and a community of sovereign nations that the U.S. would best maintain its self-interest by helping other nations stand on their own two feet, break free of colonialism, and importantly, never allow the enmeshment of, of the U.S. into foreign intrigue, but also, like, don't go around searching for monsters to destroy is the famous quote, but also to keep foreign imperial interests from it entering deeper into the Americas. That was John Quincy's whole uh, principle. Uh, Washington and Hamilton also enumerated this in their own clear way. This, so this, this is something that American patriots understood and Roosevelt understood this with his good neighbor policy that I mentioned before with, with Latin America. Uh, principle two is very important, especially if we're going to get anywhere today in, you know, the India-China conflicts or the, is, you know, the different uh, Middle Eastern problems. You got to have this understood clearly to so article two, which again, they don't teach you in school. If you, if you take a political science class, you learn that the peace of Westphalia was when we all learned to just stop killing each other and re respect each other's rights to be left alone. That's the modern so sovereign nations. That's what we're told. But what I'm showing people here is I've never met a political science student or even professor who understood these two things, even though they're the first, it's the, it's the, it's the preamble of the damn thing. But the, the second one is on forgiveness in a real way, that there shall be on, on the one side and on the other per, perpetual oblivion, amnesty, or pardon of all that has been committed since the beginning of these troubles, in what place or what manner soever the hostilities have been practiced, in such a manner that nobody under any pretext whatsoever shall practice any acts of hostility, entertain any enmity, or cause any trouble to, to each other. The thing that makes this work is not that it's just everybody agreeing to these nice, pretty ideas. It's that you have infrastructure projects for the next decades. There's a fight by by people like uh, Colbert, who is what 
inspires Hamilton and Ben Franklin and many other founding fathers to create the American system of political economy, of protectionism, dirigism, the investment of treasuries into public works instead of into speculation or into war. So they invest, you can just see the growth of canals that are being built in Germany, in France, uh, academies, uh, trade schools, right, to give people real skill sets. Um, scientific academies as well are being built up, like the French Academy of Sciences, uh, Germany, that similar things are, be- are happening there. So you have this economic, real economic development happening to give vitality to this, because you can't just tell people whose families have been killing each other over religious differences for generations. You can't just tell them, read these two things and uh, you're good. No way. Same thing for the Middle East today. It's not going to work that way. So the economic uh, aspect was key. This is replicated exactly when you look at the UN Charter itself. And I'm, I'm, I, I just picked the first four elements, sections within Article 1 of the UN Charter, um, authored by Sumner Wells and Roosevelt, because, again, nobody reads this stuff. You know, like It's important just to take it in while thinking about the drama we're going through. But coming out of, I mean, again, this is 1941, this is written. But uh, <clears throat> the idea of, number one, to maintain international peace and security, and to, to that end, to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace, and for the suppression of acts of aggression or other breaches of the peace, and to bring about by peaceful means and in conformity with the principles of justice and international law, adjustment or settlement of international disputes or situations which might lead to a breach of the peace. So again, total uh, denial of things like R2P. It can't happen if you actually follow this. Number two, to develop friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principles of equal rights and self-determination of the peoples, and to take other appropriate measures to strengthen universal peace. Self-determination, again, not compatible with world government. Number three, to achieve international cooperation in solving international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, and in promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. And again, no NATO 2030 here. Um, This is actually much more in alignment with the BRI, which I'll say something more about the Belt and Road Initiative. And finally, number four, to be a center for harmonizing the actions of nations in the attainment of these common ends. And as I write here in my article, just in case any imperially minded legalist wished to read the charter loosely, article two, the next one, quickly makes it clear. These are my words here. But then then the I quote from the charter again. The organization is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all of its members. Not world government. Again, just to really hammer this home, okay? So what was done was that... <clears throat> To, just like in Westphalia, to give vitality, you had the Bretton Woods Conference that Roosevelt and uh, Harry Dexter White, uh, who represented the U.S. De- uh, delegation with Henry Morgenthau, they organized the New Hampshire Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, which brought together delegations, hundreds of dele- delegates from India, Africa, South America, Russia, Europe. Uh, Britain obviously had their major delegation. And there was a, a major China as well, ma- big representation by China. Um the idea was to flesh out what would be the conditions for the new world financial system after World War II and what would be the projects that would give vitality to the world. Now, every single delegation, there, there's incredible um, reports of the Chinese um, program by, of Sun Yat-sen, so that both 
Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, as well as Mao and Zhu Enlai, all co-endorsed for their delegation, because at the time they still had an alliance, um, a one-China alliance. They, they co-endorsed their program for the reconstruction of China using Sun Yat-sen, the first president, the first Christian president of China, the revolutionary, his de international development program featuring rail, water projects, ports, and everything else. Both sides co-endorsed it, and the U.S. delegates loved it, gave their full backing. India had massive development strategies that they had said, okay, let's, let's, have, let's have this define our uh, post-colonial age, South America, Russia, Eastern Europe, everywhere. It wasn't just the, the Marshall Plan, and the U.S. fully backed all of that. So the idea of creating the World Bank, the IMF, um, or the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, these which were all Bretton Woods institutions. And keep in mind, Der Harry Dexter White, who was an anti-colonialist, a friend of FDR, and who believed in these things, he became the first IMF director. He was he died in 1948 for a very specific reason. Um, the British delegations were, they were there to defend, again, the British Empire. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, did not inspire Roosevelt. He was an enemy of Roosevelt. Roosevelt thought he was insane. He called him a mathematician and a fetishist, not an economist. Keynes called Roosevelt, on record, um, an incompetent, an economic incompetent idiot. Um, Roosevelt's personal secretary, uh, uh, Francis Perkins, records all of this. So, you know, the, the, the idea that Roosevelt was a Keynesian is a complete myth that was created by Roosevelt's enemies after Roosevelt died in early death in April 12th, 1945. Uh, but, but Keynes and the British delegation were totally in opposition. Their whole plan was to, to save the empire, to stop all development, keep control of their colonies, and to keep control in the city of London and the Bank of England. That's what Keynes's Bancor was all about as, a, as an international trading unit. Uh, Soros is, uh, anyway, that, that's sort of the, the foundation for today's discussion of a green new deal is to recreate the Keynesian Bancor closed system. It's not based upon the Rooseveltian idea of a new deal, which is being internationalized of great projects going out abroad to create new wealth in an open system of international development. So this is, this is just like, again, in Westphalia with the water projects and, and engineering projects, it's the same sort of spirit. And uh, Wallace with White and Sumner Wells and, and FDR are all talking about bringing in Russia and China and the United States as the core of the foundation for a new financial system. Britain would be pulled in, but would have to obey the rules set by Russia, China, and the United States. They're very clear on that. The last, um, the last slide I have is um, um, a, a the recording of a, of a conflict between FDR and Churchill in 1941, just as the Atlantic Charter was being si signed. And, you know, Ch Churchill up here was looking all grim and blue. Um, Roosevelt tells Churchill, who's now realizing that, uh, that the empire is going to be dismantled if Hitler is put down and, and uh, they're deciding on the rules of the new system. Uh, so he's confused. What what uh, what are these twenty? What are what what is wrong with nineteenth century colonial methods that Roosevelt is making fun of and saying that we need twentieth century methods uh, instead now? 
And uh, Roosevelt clarifies saying, whichever of your ministers recommends a policy which takes the wealth and raw materials out of a colonial country, but which returns nothing to the people of that country in consideration. 20th century methods, that's, so those are 19th century methods. 20th century methods involve bringing industry to these colonies. 20th century methods includes increasing the wealth of a people by increasing their standard of living, by educating them, by bringing them sanitation, by making sure that they get a return for the raw raw wealth of their country. And then Elliot Roosevelt writes in his narrative, around the room, all of us were leaning, leaning forward attentively. Hopkins, that's Harry Hopkins, uh, Roosevelt's best friend, was grinning. Commander Thompson, Churchill's aide, was looking glum and alarmed. The prime minister himself was beginning to look apoplectic. You mentioned India, he growled. Yes, I can't believe that we can fight a war against fascist slavery and at the same time not work to free people all over the world from a backward colonial policy. Then Churchill says, but what about the Philippines? He's trying to take a shot at Roosevelt because that's an American colony. Roosevelt says, I'm glad you mentioned them. They get their independence, you know, in 1946. And they've gotten modern sanitation, modern education. Their rate of illiteracy has gone down steadily. There can be no tampering with the empire's economic agreements. Roosevelt says they're artificial. They're the foundation for our greatness. The peace, said father, that's how Elliot obviously calls his dad, uh, cannot include any continued despotism. The structure of the peace demands and will get equality of peoples. Equality of peoples involves the utmost freedom of competitive trade. Will anyone suggest that Germany's attempt to dominate trade in Central Europe was not a major contributing factor to the war? So just to get across, I mean, this this goes on and people can read the entire book as he saw it, which is where this this comes from, um, from 1946. They can get this online. Just type it in archive.org. Read it. It's really worth reading. Um, and it gets clear that Roosevelt had thoroughly developed passionate ideas for greening the Sahara Desert with big infrastructure projects, much like what Gaddafi tried doing. Uh, that NATO destroyed in 2011 with the great man-made water project. That was, Roosevelt was already talking about that. And the idea was to take the U.S. arsenal that was built up productively for war and convert it into an actual arsenal for democracy. Uh, there's a really good book people should read called Freedom's Forge by Arthur Hermann, um, which goes through this, this plan to actually create an international new deal to extend what was done successfully. And people like Kwame Nkrumah, you know, the, the, the leader of the Pan-African movement, the, the president of Ghana, he studied in America. He studied the Tennessee Valley Authority and all of these big projects that inspired him to get an idea of how Africa as a whole could liberate itself and, and pull itself into modernity. Um, model on the US New Deal. Yeah, totally. And this is done all over South America too. And, uh, and beyond China, India, again, all had arrangements. And it was the British who stopped, you know, the, Mountbatten, the guy who sponsored, uh, the, the pedophile who sponsored uh, Prince Philip, his uncle, was the guy in charge of India who was the one who negotiated to keep British control for India one extra year longer to give them a chance to create the right fault lines in place over ethnic tensions and, and religious tensions between Muslims in Pakistan and Hindus and Sikhs. And, and inversely, right? And it would just be an ongoing constant fight with British run and guided intelligence services amongst all of these nations playing the Yagos lighting fires, kind of like the British are still trying to do today uh, to keep this, this peace from actually happening. Um, I think similar things can be found as well regarding uh, China too. You're going to find all sorts of skull and bones 
uh, and British intelligence operations all over, both sides, infiltrating both sides of the communists as well as the Kuomintang, um, which are, again, lighting fires. And you have patriots as well as traitors on both sides. You have good people like Zhu Enlai working for the four modernizations of China uh, to bring back the spirit of Sun Yat-sen, as well as people like the Gang of Four, who are these, you know, um, utopian ideologues who bring about the cultural rev revolution and try to basically undo any type of good uh, and hit it. They basically try to undo 2,500 years of Chinese history um, in one, one decade. And so you, you got these, these deep state expressions in all cultures that are being organized by the same British octopus, which is essentially, as I said, not really British it's, it's Venetian because before these families chose to take over Britain, uh, in 1688 to 1694 was when they set up the Bank of England. Before that, it was a Venetian. Everyone understood this. A right. Venetian parasite. That's where the families were based. And they, they merchants of Venice, huh? The merchants of Venice. The merchants of Venice. Exactly. They were the Iagos. The uh, exactly the Shylocks, and they used uh, different figures, different you know uh, bankers with with Jewish heritage. Not because it's a Jewish conspiracy at all. That's not the case. They just simply used certain useful idiots um, that were very good sociopathic uh, operators that they granted authority to and wealth to and protected as little dynastic mercenaries like the Rothschilds to carry out the duties of empire after the 18th century. This had been going on already a few hundred years earlier, but it's not like this thing goes back. And I'm just talking to people right now who are still on the fence or trying to figure out what, you know, th there's a lot of Jewish conspiracy stuff out there. And I want to give people a sense that there's, this thing goes far back before even Judaism was created. It's an oligarchical system of a continuity of families and ideologies that are committed to a very satanic view of human beings made in the image of mud and a very evil creator that uh, made the elite in their, in, in the image of evil. Um, so there's this whole like dogma that transmits itself over many generations and has certain common characteristics to it, but they're always afraid of the exact same attributes of create creative passion and discoveries of truth that come out of human beings who don't obey obey their rules their you know rules based orders that they try to get us to to suck ourselves into yeah so, matthew when you when you look back through history and you look at the the leadership and the ideas that were formatted back in that day and then you fast forward to where we are today you look at probably by far when you look at the canadian for example justin trudeau who probably has sworn more allegiance to to the city of London, kiss the Queen's ring and all that, to uh, cardboard cutout in chief Biden. Do you have any faith that North America can pivot to any type of level of resemblance to the leadership that was documented in history? I don't see it. I I, I don't. Not when we have like a half a million or 10 million, 20 million people who are pegged the idea that Trump is going to get back and, you know, do campaigning and, and you know, win in 2024. I I don't see it. I, I, you know, again, getting back to those ideas of history that were formatted back then and document that and, and benchmark that against where we are today. It's 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 difficult to see any resemblance of hope uh, that could reconstruct mm. and get us back to that level of leadership in North America. See, yeah. <clears throat> one thing I'll tell you is this. When you're living in a country where members of your intelligence organization is leaving classified dossiers in a trash can in a bus stop, you know you've lost it. <laughs> you have no chance in hell of ever finding any sort of leadership 
anywhere in order to steer your country and correct its trajectory. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's right. I, I mean, it's a really good question, Siege, and everybody is thinking about this right now. I, I, I personally, I approach this in two ways, you know, like on the one hand, obviously the, the, the best thing that happened with the Trump phenomenon was it demonstrated at the very least that the uh, script, this new world order script is not as crystallized and uh, unchallengeable as many had thought it was for a very long time. They thought the the oligarchy. They thought Hillary Clinton wasn't in you know everything that they wanted. They were getting so that demonstrated at the very least that there was something that was still salvageable within inside the United States that allowed uh, to allowed for a, a patriotic impulse to arise into a real set of power that did honestly disrupt a lot of international uh, New World Order policies. A lot of things were disrupted. Well, I think I think yeah. Latin America uh, under economic pressure, right? When you look at Latin America, that's really struggling. That's yeah. really. Yeah. I think that they will find a a lot clearer path to alignment into uh, the the new uh, one belt one ro road yeah. projects with 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 China and and even Mexico is starting to resemble that quite a bit. Yeah, and so I, I think by by far, you know, the United States will have to turn and pivot and look at Mexico and how to shape, you know, shift that influence back, whether they do it through the drug cartels or the level of influence or, or flooding mm -hmm. Mexico with guns. It's just mm -hmm. very interesting to be living through this time period where we're seeing this, you know, monumental shift, but yet, you know, for the most part, North America seems very disconnected from the rest of the world order. Yeah. The, yeah. It, yeah. No, it, absolutely. it sickens me. It sickens me to my core that we are living in a country that is the number one impediment to world and global peace and yeah. human prosperity. That sickens me to no end. And apart from the people that listen to broadcasts such as this and others who are in the uh, in varying you know, different uh, spheres and spectrums of the alternative political narratives that are, that are out there, we're the only ones. But the vast majority of people literally believe that if they keep their head down and, you know, things are perpetually is going to continue and we got nothing to worry about. All I got to do is pay my bills, put my kids through college and everything will be hunky dory. And I, hell, I'll try my best. It is a lazy, ignorant viewpoint of living, and it's going to cost the majority of Westerners their lives. I firmly believe that. And I'm not talking about lives in the sense of the physical sense. But the life, the quality of life that they that they take for granted, that they're so used to, is about to be vaporized right in front of their eyes. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get a, a slap of serious reality that we've been uh, comforted and protected from by virtue of just us having been born into a very affluent society. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, we're still sort of enjoying the sacrifices and, and productivity that was created by the past uh, generations that fought World War II. Um, and we've been sort of just in a situation as a consumer society, uh, parasitically enjoying it, but not creating anything new or making anything better or even maintaining what we were given. That's why our infrastructure, even in Canada, is, is dead. You know, it's collapsing. It needs. So um, on the one hand, we have a big bubble economy, no productivity. That's going to result in a lot of pain. On the other hand, you do have this multipolar world of sovereign nation states, yeah. Russia, China are the defenders of the principles of Westphalia, of the U.S. Constitution, even ironically, the ironically. idea that every nation has the right to self-governance, auto self-determination and development. 
Um, that's where the whole idea of the general welfare, I mean, that, that's, it comes out of that. So you, you have this reality, and we're seeing that the U.S. has even been forced, despite this parasite controlling it, has been forced with the reality of nuclear war um, so pressing. We've seen that even amongst Biden coming out of this Biden-Putin meeting, there has been uh, some major surprising changes that surprised me. I didn't like I'm, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind right now to a certain degree. I have no delusions about Biden. I, I, the, only, the only thing I know is that Biden is delusional. But I have no delusions about his delusion. And um, but we do have the US pulling back from their their push for war that we were facing just a few, you know, a couple of months back over Ukraine. We have uh, Nord Stream 2 going ahead right now. The US is making moves, we're seeing, to pull out their FAD missile shield in the Middle East, which is very important. Um, and other, you know, the, so there's a certain amount of um response to a higher reality, which the, the oligarchy didn't want to acknowledge existed, but with the, you know, even the oligarchy, I think mo at least most of them, there was some that wanted to go full on with Hitler right back in the thirties. Some of them were like, fuck it. I don't care. We, we put all this energy of decades into bringing Hitler into power. Let's just go full throttle, even if it means that we have to, you know, whatever. So you, you have this, th these different aspects of the oligarchy. It's not consistent with itself, but some of them are, are looking at the, the scenario of nuclear war around the world and the idea of them living in underground, uh, you know, maybe they're underground mansions that maybe are kind of comfortable, but it's, is it really a place you want to live for decades? Uh, it's not, not the best case scenario. And, uh, and they're not liking that. So they're forced to respond to this broader reality that Putin and Xi Jinping um, have brought to the table. So that's, that creates potentials that um, I would be a lot more depressed right now, probably a lot more dead if, Putin and Xi Jinping were not operational currently. So it's there's things we don't control. And additionally, for the longer philosophical approach to that question, uh, CJ, I would just say, think Ben Franklin, think Dante. Uh, the two examples that I give me a lot of hope is studying Dante Alighieri. And, you know, even though he's known as a poet and the guy who did the, the Comedia, no, this guy was the, the one of the highest uh, political powers in Florence at a time of strategic importance in the in the 13th century. He had a, a major fight that he organized, a conspiracy with, with like-minded platonic humanists against the deep state of the time of Venice that had infiltrated and had tried to undermine uh, Florence um, and, and everybody. Um, and his, his de monarchia, uh, the, his, his political writings are the foundation in many ways for the modern nation state system that, that blossomed with the Renaissance and again with Westphalia and even further with the American Revolution and Constitution. So Dante, at a certain point, lost power. He was exiled. His, his allies were assassinated in Florence and he was exiled from Florence. Um, the, the opportunities for direct political action disappeared. Now, you could have either made the choice to just become depressed. He could have become like a, you know, a... A, a drunk, you know, and just washed away his sorrows. Um, or he changed gears and he started acting on the longer wave of history. Right. Right. Uh, right. And that's what he did. He was like, okay, and maybe in the momentary time, even maybe not even in my lifetime, I can't get the change that I was hoping to see before the, the coup happened, but now let's start playing. And, and he started working on his soul and started working on teaching and creating new, basically a, a unified Italian language. In the, in the in his works uh, um, on uh, anyway I, we have a section on the Rising Tide Foundation with all of his works and he's he's creating a foundation for 
a cultural environment that could be conducive to the types of changes he couldn't see in his his lifetime. The second, and that's what happens with the with the great Florentine Renaissance with Da Vinci and uh, you know others late, a little bit later on, and and even the the big economic project that was sort of the Apollo project science driver that organized society to create in which the Renaissance was able to happen. That was known as the 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 Brunelleschi's Dome. Francesco Brunelleschi was uh, a teacher of of Da Vinci, a follower of of Dante, and Dante put into place a project. He initiated this project to build an impossibly big dome that was mathematically and physically impossible. New discoveries had to be made um, in a beautiful cathedral, and it took 180 years for this thing to finally happen. A lot of a lot of people had to work on this thing to awake awake. Uh, potentials of thought and discovery that that did never happened before, and organize all of society around this beautiful dome. And this whole city of Florence was organized around the dome. It's you can see it. It's, it's all coherent, and so that created the climate for genius to to arise in a multitude of ways. Uh, that's where the Renaissance came from, um, in so many ways. And yeah, uh, and I would yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. You know, ab mm. absolutely, and in, indeed. And when I when I think back to the the challenges, I'm not sure if you guys, either one of you. Uh, read this today, but a, um, a U.S. court judge actually uh, ruled against the DOJ and the antitrust uh, ruling to uh, break up uh, Facebook, Facebook from from WhatsApp and Instagram and everything. Mm -hmm. the, ju the judge said no. And, and I think why that's key is because I think either way, in terms of, of getting back to that era of the Renaissance and back to those ideas that you expressed, Matthew, even, even like the Schiller Institute and everything, it's like, how do we resonate with the youth? How do we resonate and, and capture the younger generation, capture their minds to become interested, to understand these things versus what they're faced with, with the tech oligarchs. And I, 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 I was suggesting that all three of us do rap videos, uh, you know, <laughs> do TikTok videos together. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. You know, uh, I'll rap. CJ will twerk. Uh, Matthew will provide the background vocals. I think this could work guys. And we'll have village guy, village guys here. We've got hobo sermons. He could strum the guitar. Uh, village guy could keep saying exceptional stand is awesome. And we got it. We can wake up the entire population of North America. The children will be free. I believe I it. Actually, there, there's actually a guy, a teacher, who actually does rap videos on incredible scientific breakthroughs like Kepler versus Tycho Brahe. Oh, and nice. They're, they're really good. And, yeah, they're a bit – I mean, you know – they're not too gangster, but they're good, and uh, they would appeal to kids. I'll, I'll I'll email them to you guys. You can share them with your your network. <laughs> but somebody's somebody's on it. Somebody's on it. Somebody's on it. <laughs> Lock them. In. And Hari said that he could do a pole dance for us. Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking. Rainbow flags everywhere while we rap. That's it. I'll hold the trans flag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Matt, it's great having you on. Folks, again, go check out his work, CanadianPatriot.com, as well as the Rising Tide Foundation.net, the Rising Tide Foundation.net. And make sure you subscribe, 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 and donate to the Substack and his work that he does. Uh, join the Telegram. I mean, there's millions of people on there right now. It's it's an amazing study. A uh, lot of things going on. So make sure you uh, keep abreast of what Matthew's up to and the amazing work that he does. We love him here at Rogue. He is amazing, and we ask that you support him wholeheartedly. And with that being said, any last words, guys? Oh, I'm good. As, al as always, I'll just plug uh, every week. People probably know this, but you, you may not know this. Uh, the Rising Tide Foundation 
my wife and I, we curate weekly uh, lectures. Uh, yes. This coming week, it's going to be uh, Martin Seif, the uh, the great uh, award-winning journalist who's going to be doing a presentation on Lincoln and Lincoln's relationship to Shakespeare. Um, last week, we had Anton Chaikin on, and uh, we're going to do something in the coming weeks on, on Pan-Africanism, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Confucius's relation or how Benjamin Franklin loved Confucius. Uh, there's going to be a lot. So people, if they want to be involved with these or it's usually every Sunday afternoon, just send an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net and uh, we'll send you a zoom, a zoom link and you could participate, ask questions. It's, it's a lot of fun. Amazing website, man. Rising Tide Foundation. I call it the modern day library of Alexandria. Go there, go check it out, educate yourself. I'm telling you right now, folks, the last thing you have is your brain. Go use it. And with that being said, we're over and out. Take it away, CJ. Yeah.